Dr. Jeffrey Stone. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so you are, well, first of all, you're an associate professor at Indiana State University. Is that right? Yes. And what do you teach there? Um, sort of a range of courses. I teach some geology courses and some environmental science courses, um, kind of focusing mostly on water systems, water environment systems, mostly freshwater. Okay. And, um, are you also a paleolimnologist? Yes. So, um, the, the thing that I mostly study is lakes and, uh, and mostly I do sort of ecology or, or paleolimnological reconstructions from lakes. Okay. So it's funny because we've already had a paleolimnologist on the show, uh, Dr. Molina. Um, but the reason I asked you specifically is because you come in from a different perspective. With Dr. Molina, we talk about what it was like as a grad student, um, somebody who's in early career. You are a professor, but also you're on Twitch, which is very new uh, you know, for scientists uh, to be doing that. So I want to talk to you a little bit about Twitch, but first I want to start with the paleolimnology so that people can understand exactly what your expertise is. Um, so how would you explain paleolimnology to a 10-year-old? Well, uh, I think most 10-year-olds know what paleontology is. And um, I'm like a paleontologist. I just work in lakes. So I study microscopic organisms, and they leave skeletons behind in the fossil record, and I use those to try to reconstruct what the lake used to be like in the past. Okay, so that's interesting. Does that mean that you only study diatoms or other um, microscopic creatures? Well, my primary research, like my personal primary research is diatoms, but my lab sometimes does um, like... Uh, phytoliths or charcoal or, I mean, other things that you could potentially use, geochemical elements. Um, but my, my focus is mostly diatoms. Okay. So, so again, let's uh, give people a bit of a primer here. Tell me exactly what is a diatom? Diatoms are single-celled organisms. They're a type of algae, um, usually called golden algae or golden brown algae. And, um, they create a silicious skeleton, so um, the cell wall is made of silica, and most of them sort of range from about maybe um, 10 micrometers to about 200 micrometers, so they, they can be a little bit smaller than that, and some of them can be a little bit bigger than that, but that's the sort of general range, so dust-sized or silt-sized particles, and um, their valves are made out of two parts. That's where the name diatom comes from. So di means two, atom means parts. So basically the, just, the skeleton has two parts. They fit together a little bit like a hat box or a Petri dish or, or a pokeball, if you'd like. It's funny because I've been looking at diatoms under the microscope for about a year now, and I actually never even questioned where the name came from. So I appreciate you saying that. And so all diatoms are in two parts. Is that the understanding? That is a requirement, yeah. A requirement, <laughs> okay. And actually, um, a scientist told me that they're not really sure how diatoms move. Is that true? So only if uh, some diatoms have motility, um, they have a, most of those have a, a, a sort of a slit 
on the valve, like through the skeleton, through the cell wall, um, that we know that they use to attach to a substrate and substrate. And I know that they can also, um, some of them can sort of crawl, um, but it's always the raphe that's associated with the crawling. Now the actual like physics of it, I don't think they know. I mean, uh, uh, it's not a cilia. It's not like the normal ways that people, um, think of microscopic organisms moving. Um, but, um, like the actual mechanism, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I really encourage people to get, you know, uh, a microscope. You can even get a, a twenty dollar cheap microscope, and you can actually look at diatoms. They they are they're beautiful. They're all different shapes. Um, at least here in Canada, here in Ottawa, they're m most likely diamond shaped. A lot of them. Uh, whereabouts? Um, so you're in Indiana, and what are the diatoms like over there? Well, diatoms are sort of, um, their shape is sort of controlled by the, somewhat by the environment that they live in. So um, if you're in relatively deep water, uh, you end up with a lot of diatoms that are planktic, are usually sort of round or, or maybe uh, hemispherical. And the ones that are attached to substrates that really could come in any kinds of, uh, of shapes. Um, probably the ones that people are most commonly see are like the naviculoids, which are kind of uh, canoe-shaped or boat-shaped. Okay, yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely one of my favorite things to to look at under a microscope. And I learned, um, I think it was Marianne Denton, an aquatic ecologist out of Nevada, who taught me that uh, if the diatom that you're looking at under the microscope has a little bit of gold in it, it means it's still alive. But when the gold isn't there anymore, it's it's dead, right? Yeah, that's their chloroplast. Actually, it's a pigment that they um, that they have inside the cell. And if it doesn't have any chloroplast, it's a dead cell. Okay. So do we know like how long diatoms live for? Um, it's variable. I think most people, most people, you know, it depends. Some of them will get buried or or uh, or whatever. But I think most people think they live something like a month uh, or or maybe up to three months. Um, it kind of depends on whether they're planktic or benthic. In other words, whether they're floating in the water column or attached to a substrate. Um, but it, it's it's probably not longer than that. And that's you know, of course, dependent on whether or not they get eaten. Yeah, being eaten um, will cut their lifespan down quite a bit. Um, one of the, what that question is actually kind of hard to answer in a way because, um, diatoms clone themselves when they replicate, um, asexually, they have a, a sort of weird sexual cycle that switches between, um, asexual and sexual. And when, when they're in the asexual reproduction phase, they just clone themselves and they can do it very rapidly. And so, um, like anything that's a clone, when you ask about how long it lives, are you talking about, you know, one of the clones? Are you talking about the organism? Because, you know, as a clone, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, like an individual, an individual cell probably lives, yeah, like maybe a month or something. But the clone probably lives for years. Like if you think of that organism as being um, all of the clones as a collective. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Uh, so just one more thing to consider then when, when I do my interviews when it comes to asking longevity. Um, and, and they are really at the bottom of the food chain, right? I mean, they, 
I guess they, they, since they have a chloroplast, they would get nutrition through light? Yes, they, well, uh, most of them, yes. So they are, are photosynthetic and autotrophic for the most part. In other words, they make their own food from from sunlight and carbon dioxide and and water. But uh, but the, there are some diatoms that um, can switch to heterotrophic. And I didn't even know this, but um, they're pretty uncommon. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, somebody told me that, and then I went and looked it up. And there are some heterotrophic diatoms, or they can switch to heterotrophic, but it's pretty uncommon. Sorry, what's heterotrophic? Oh, uh, they can eat other things. A diatom, so some very rare diatoms can eat other creatures? Yeah. Uh, Whoa. Either, either nutrients, um, you know, in the environment directly, like decaying matter, um, or I guess organisms that are smaller than them. I, I'm, this isn't really my, uh, my area of study. It's just uh, I'm trying to be as precise as possible with my answer, which is that most of them are autotrophic. But there's just a, a sliver of them that can switch. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I I totally get you know that it's not your your major focus or area of study, but it's still cool that you mentioned it though, because I think uh, you know it's definitely going to lead me to maybe do some more Google searches on on diatoms. Um, so you essentially study their fossil, so that means they stick around for quite a while. Yes. Um, so the. You know, because I'm a paleoecologist, I, I actually have to study both their their sort of living conditions today and also um, sort of extrapolate into the past what I think they probably lived, what kind of conditions I think they probably lived in. And so um, it, it's not only looking at the skeletons, but um, so to answer your question, their skeletons kind of stick around in the environment for... Um, millions of years if you're in the right condition, which um, the, the only conditions that usually dissolve silica, which is what their skeletons are made out of, is um, very high pH. So pH above nine or, or so will start to dissolve the skeleton. Um, otherwise, the silica usually preserves. And so um, I've studied diatoms uh, and done research on diatoms from 10 million years ago. And um, I mean, people have found them spanning much farther back in time. So their, their origin is basically Jurassic. And um, people know that because they found skeletons from the Jurassic, basically, of, of diatoms. So where on earth would you find a 10 million year old diatom? Well, uh, if you... If you wanted to just go take a look at some, you could stop at your local hardware store and grab a bag of diatomite, which is uh, sometimes just called diatomaceous earth. And most of the diatoms that you find in uh, diatomaceous earth that's sold over the counter is probably really ancient stuff, maybe somewhere between six and 10 million years old. Um, because it, at least in the US, a lot of it is sourced from diatom, diatomite quarries and so those are, you know, ancient deposits that are mostly diatom. So it's a good way to, to see some of the older stuff pretty easily. Um, I have worked on some diatoms and am currently working on some diatoms from the Lake Idaho Formation, which is in um, Idaho and stretches across much of the uh, western part of the U.S. But um, 
I've also worked on some diatomites from East Africa. So, and those were, I think the oldest that we looked at was about 5 million years old there. And is this from a uh, bottom of a lake? No. Um, by this point, they are uh, essentially like rocks. Like you, you might mistake them for like chalk, not the chalk that you would use in a classroom, but like chalk cliffs, basically, like the cliffs of Dover. Those are made out of, uh, not made out of diatoms. Those are made out of calcareous organisms. But when you get a lot of diatoms together and they die in the same place, it creates the same kind of a white, light-colored rock, um, usually a little bit more, a little lower density than chalk. So um, you can pick it out if you're in the field by the fact that it's really bright colored, and but it's basically just a rock. Um, and so at, at this point, you know, if it's been around that long, all the organic matter is no longer present in the material. And it's just, um, there's so many skeletons of diatoms that you could pick it up and, and hold it in your hand like a rock. That's amazing. Um, is this something, I think, like, like you just said, you, you could pick it out in a field based on its color and all that stuff. But I guess that's not easy for the average person to notice, right? Probably not. Uh, it, uh, the average geologist maybe could do it, but I think the average person probably wouldn't, wouldn't spot it or know what it was immediately. They would just think it was a light colored rock. And, um, you know, they're used in a bunch of things as diatomite. So, um, you know, where there's quarries or something, you might be able to go there and spot them pretty easily. Okay. That's really cool. Um, so when you f are looking at uh, diatom fossils, are there other microscopic creatures that leave skeletons for that long? Yes. Um, like what? Oftentimes found together with the diatoms, the really old stuff are sponge spicules, which also um, have a siliceous uh, component to them. They're, they're silica. And also um, phytoliths, which are like pieces of plants that um, fossilize. And um, if, if you're in freshwater, you might find um, pollen, for example, mixed in with that. Um, or some of, the, some of the algae, like pediastrum, for example, is kind of durable. And the skeletal component of that might persist. Um, for the most part, I think, I think that's most of what you would find um, in freshwater settings. If you were looking at diatomites in the marine realm, you could find all num a number of other things like foram, foraminifera or um, uh, silica flagellates or, uh, you know, there's a sort of a wide range of marine organisms. I, I don't generally study those, but, um, but in diatomite deposits that are collected from those types of environments, you could find them. Okay. And as you know, and I'm sure my fans know, is that I am big on tardigrades. Um, so I know that when um, tardigrades shed, essentially, well, let's just call it their skin. When, when they shed their skin um, or their molt, uh, isn't that also made out of silica? And if so, wouldn't that pot potentially leave a fossil? I, I think it's made out of chitin. I don't I, I, I don't know for sure what their uh, sort of exoskeleton is made out of. I don't think it's silica because I think that's a little too rigid. Um, uh, but when they, they do fossilize because uh, what we know of, of uh, water bears is that they have 
uh, lived through all five of the major extinction events. And so, um, you know, there's obviously evidence from the fossil record of that or that, or that we wouldn't know that. So, um, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen a, uh, you know, a, a skeleton of a, a water bear from any, like an ancient skeleton of a water bear, uh, or even a molt or anything like that. Uh, I've only seen them in their modern forms. Okay. I figured I'd ask because I thought I thought it was the same material, but I guess I'm wrong. Um, so why why are you studying diatom fossils? Well, in um, in essence, what I try to do is use the diatoms to help me figure out what environments were like in the past. And the thing that really separates diatoms from most other organisms is that they're widespread. They can be found in practically any aquatic or subaquatic environment and they have short lifespans as we just talked about and the skeleton preserves very easily um, so there's only a few conditions that where they wouldn't be preserved and even in very low nutrient settings you can still get diatoms so um, the the other part that's really critical to this is that um, in in most systems they're abundant and um, somewhat cosmopolitan. In other words, uh, we can recognize a diatom from, say, Canada and Indiana uh, that may be the same diatom. And, um, and also, they're highly sensitive to environmental conditions. So um, they can be sensitive to things like temperature, uh, salinity, alkalinity, um, pH, and um, nutrients. And so there's a sort of a wide range of things. And the thing that I actually use them the most for is depth. So I, I like to think about um, what's happened to the hydroclimate in a lake system by um, looking at how the diatom assemblage responds to changes in lake level. So uh, we all know, for example, that um, a drought, a persistent drought will cause the lake levels to lower. And um, when that happens, the diatoms that live in deep water basically become less abundant than the ones that live in shallow water and move um, closer towards the deep water, the old deep water environment. And so as a result, if we took a core in that deep water environment, we would see a relative increase in the diatoms that live in shallow water, for example, as they sort of encroach into the deeper water. And so I like to use this to reconstruct past drought conditions or hydroclimate sort of variability. And um, there aren't a lot of tools that are really quite as um, powerful as diatoms to give us a, a really wide range of information like that. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of tools that can tell you maybe one aspect of, um, of a past environment, but the diatom assemblage can, if you, you know, if you know what you're, you're, you're looking at and how they live, it sort of speaks to um, speaks to me about what that environment was. So you said that you are either currently or have studied um, a lake in Idaho, right? Yeah, um, it, it's an ancient lake. Ancient. Uh, yeah, there's it, the lake's not there anymore. Uh, I see. I see. So what did you? So let's use that as as an example. Then what did you learn? about uh, this ancient lake by studying its diatoms? Well, um, there's a, like I said, you could use, uh, you could try to figure out what the 
the water depth was times in, at times in the past. Um, you could also look at changes in salinity. So the same deposits or similar deposits from the western part of the U.S., some of them are salty, some of them are shallow with respect to what you see in the diatom record. Some of them are quite deep. And so, um, you know, we can just basically use that to figure out a couple of things like what what was that environment like in the past and maybe if we were careful about where we were mapping it we could tell something about um, how that environment changed through time and um, really the reason i was sort of invited to work on some of those uh, samples is that they were trying to help they were trying to get some help figuring out um, the age of the samples by looking at the diatoms because the diatoms will evolve over those time spans, and um, they were they wanted me to take a look at it and see if I could basically just um, provide some insight into how old the deposits are based on which diatoms you see. That's really curious. So when you say that they evolve after a certain amount of time, do you mean that the characteristics of the diatoms change? Yeah, because we're just looking at the skeletons. Um, I have a, a number of projects that are younger uh, than, than the millions of years old projects from, uh, from um, Idaho, where we see evolution in the diatom um, in a single species, for example, over the span of about, um, from start to end, about 4,000 years, maybe 5,000 years. Uh, where you can actually see the organism change shape through time by very carefully analyzing the shape. So um, I have two projects where we have where we've observed this, and uh, a number of um, other people. I'm not the first person to uh, have observed this in the uh, in the, the fossil record, but um, but that's something that people have observed before: is that diatoms basically can evolve, and they're actually. Um, it, it's sort of cool because they're one of the only organisms that we have um, true records of evolution over the span of the Holocene where we can actually see them change shape because they are so productive. And, um, and from a lake system, they're all found in basically that same setting. So um, you might have an organism that lives in the lake today that was also living, well, its ancestors were living in the lake um, you know, 10,000 years ago, and you can sort of see what it was like 10,000 years ago and then what it's like today by looking at it in a scanning electron microscope or sometimes just in a light microscope. So that's super cool. Do we know why they change shapes? Well, that's a question that I'm still exploring. Um, you know, it's speculation. Um, one of the things that we noticed in um, in both of the records where I've observed is that there seems to be a whole scale, a whole scale sort of um, change, wholesale change in that environment. So in, in one case, the lake goes from a lake sort of to a bog. And in the process, um, probably a bunch of new environments open up for those organisms to evolve into. And in another case, um, it was a what appears to have been a much larger lake in the past. And, um, and as the lake sort of shrank in size, uh, it, it became a little bit more isolated from the surrounding environments. And um, there's some changes to the lake structure that probably resulted in a change in the size of the organism. So, um, but those are, 
you, you know, it's it's sort of speculation at this point because there's a bunch of potential drivers for it. Um, you know, the things that are probably causing it to happen, um, and some of them might be interrelated. So I I don't know that I feel confident basically just throwing out. I think it's definitely this. But um, in the work that I've done, you can you can see that it's the same organism, or it starts off as the same organism, and then it just gradually changes shape. So, um, if you were to look at the um, either the assemblage from the top of the core to the bottom of a core, which is you know thousands of years different, you might think they were different species. Um, you know, you might uh, have trouble connecting them as being exactly the same species because they're similar, but their shape has changed enough that two different scientists might call them by different names. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, finding out, you know, if you reach a conclusion on that, I'm, I hope you'll, you'll share it with me because I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Um, yeah. We know that uh, diatoms produce some of the air that we breathe. Uh, and it seems like there's never like a for sure figure. I hear 80%, I hear 50%. Um, I think it's pretty fair to say that they produce about half the air that we breathe. Um, I would put the number at 40% or somewhere between 25 and 40% as being strictly diatoms. I would okay. say plankton, like the rest of the organisms that are also phytoplankton, um, that number is probably closer to 50%. Um, or maybe a little bit higher, uh, but I don't know. I mean, diatoms aren't the only organism in the plankton. They're just uh, highly productive in certain areas of the world. And um, But then the number does get sort of thrown around. Um, I like to think of it as like one in every four breaths you take is definitely oxygen that was created exclusively by diatoms. And then, you know, whether it's one in three or, or whatever, you know, or, or one in two, um, it's hard to it's hard to estimate those values because it has to do with um, understanding sort of the concentration of the organisms on the planet, and I don't think we have a very good grasp on that. So I guess well, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I'm wondering if by studying, um, you know, I know that you you use diatom fossils to study things like water levels, uh, past water levels, and and, th and things like that. Could you also use it to study perhaps like the levels of oxygen or anything like, like that? Probably not because they're generating no. oxygen. Okay. Um, and by the time diatoms arose, uh, at least from what we understand of them, the atmosphere already had a relatively high amount of oxygen in it. And um, it, it probably hasn't changed that much over that time frame. I'm, I'm not positive. Um, you know, what happened when diatoms sort of arose is that they out, out competed at some of the other organisms. Um, but you know, the size of the continents and the ocean basins change. And I mean, when you're looking at stuff across those sorts of timescales, it's really challenging to get estimates of things like that. So it's hard enough to do it today. Of course. Um, so what, uh, what does it tell you? Uh, based on based on your research, what does that tell you about climate change? Like, are you seeing uh, situations where there's been more drought, or where um, you know there should have been higher water levels, or things like that? So, um, depending on you know which project uh, I'm working on, the the answers are a little bit different. Um, what I would say is, if you were to look at 
the work that we did in Lake Malawi, for example, and some of the work that we're doing in East Africa, our intention is to sort of figure out what the climate of early humans was like. And so um, if we see a massive drought, uh, why that's important, for example, is it affects human migration patterns and civilizations. And so, for example, um, one of the papers that uh, we put out in 2007 on Lake Malawi uh, talks about this sort of mega drought conditions where there was droughts for about 10,000 years and lowered Lake Malawi down to the point. So today it's about 700 meters deep and the lake was down to like less than 100 meters deep probably. And uh, we think that the sort of influence of that is that basically it turned the entire sort of middle part of the East African Rift into a desert. Like in order to remove that much water from a system like that, um, you would have to have really severe drought on the landscape. And then if you look at where human settlement pattern patterns are, they are basically either in the southern part of South Africa or sort of in the northern part of Africa. And so as an example, diatoms were really instrumental in telling that story because um, we could look at the lake level and see that the lake level had changed significantly, like hundreds of meters of drop in lake level. And, um, and then look at the sort of response on the landscape for that. And, um, and you could see that human populations were basically isolated in different parts of Africa. And shortly after we published that paper, we got a whole bunch of people citing it associated with... Um, looking at human genomes and the DNA and thinking about how humans evolved because those populations would have been completely isolated from each other for a little while. And so um, that's one example of how you could potentially link the, the sort of science with a sort of a bigger picture to, to get a good sense of um, how you might use that information. Um, I don't, I don't know if you want me to go ramble on about it, but there, uh, another example, like from my, if I just go back to like the work I did for my dissertation, which was um, in the Western part of the US, we were looking at um, a drought cyclicity. So one of the things that we can do if we look through really long timeframes is see how frequently droughts returned. And where that's critical is, um, of course, if you're trying to plan out how drought might happen in the future, it would be sort of useful to see, is there a pattern? Can you actually see patterns of drought? And so uh, the Western part of the US is actually an area that's um, sensitive to water where we built major cities today. But we built those major cities um, during the wettest part of, <laughs> uh, of the last century. And if you go back through time and you look at that same environment, what you find is that um, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, uh, those conditions were a lot drier and the temperatures were a little bit warmer. So if you start thinking about, um, you know, modern global climate change where the temperatures are getting a little bit warmer and suddenly you start to see major droughts in the western part of the U.S. again, they're probably linked together. So we can learn a little bit about that sort of past climate and use it to tell us something about what to expect when we move the temperatures, uh, you know, the average temperatures to be warmer and warmer on planet Earth and, and sort of like project what what's the likely response. Yeah, I think that's what I find really fascinating about this field in particular. It's because 
it is a very uh, precise uh, field of study, but like you said, it has a, a more global impact. Um, do you find yourself kind of uh, interacting with other specialists like archaeologists and historians and things like that? Yeah, um, that's sort of a funny question for me because um, uh, like if you were to ask my friends that are ecologists what I do, most of them would say, oh, you know, uh, I'm a taxonomist. And if you talk to most of my taxonomist friends, they would say, oh, you're, you're a paleoecologist. Um, uh, you know, like they, I, I sit in this realm where I sort of have to have a handle on um, a, a kind of a wide range of things. But like, I actually publish a lot of papers in anthropology journals. I'm not an anthropologist. Um, but I work with anthropologists or the information that we develop, for example, um, helps understand anthropology. So, um, I can give an example. I don't, I don't know if you want me to do that, but, sure, please do. uh, in, um, uh, let's see, when was that paper? I think it was 2016. Um, we published a paper, uh, talking about, the. The record a little bit more about the record from Lake Malawi. What we were able to do is go back in time, um, look for uh, a really early volcanic eruption that uh, happened somewhere around seventy-five thousand years ago, and we were able to find um, tephra shards, so the volcanic glass from those eruptions that that other scientists could sort of fingerprint uh, as being the specific uh, Toba eruption. And there's a sort of narrative that people have been telling in anthropology for a really long time that the Toba eruption caused this huge human bottleneck in the population and um, caused this sort of nuclear winter conditions like globally. And um, so we were looking to see how that might have been, you know, what the response might have been to that eruption in Lake Malawi's record. And the nice part about that record is it spans through that time. So we were able to look at it and say, it doesn't look like we see that much of a response. I mean, there's a response there, but it's not very long. And it certainly doesn't seem like it's any bigger than, you know, many of the other things that we see across a, a sort of a larger or smaller time scale. So it certainly doesn't seem like the sort of thing that would shut down all of humanity for, you know, like create a bottleneck in our populations because still a lot of people were living in Africa at that time. And so, you know, they, they were living around Lake Malawi and they probably weren't very well affected by, um, by this huge eruption, but, um, but it's sort of, a, a narrative that exists in the anthropologic world that, that it did. And, um, we don't actually see that evidence in our record. So there's a case where we could actually kind of directly confront, uh, a narrative that people had and say, well, this doesn't seem like it's very realistic. It, it, it's so fascinating because you must feel sometimes like you're taking U-turns all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, science is sort of about discovery. Uh, at least part of it should be about discovery. And um, I mean, uh, I'm not driving the science car. I'm just, uh, I'm just in my little part of it. And so uh, sometimes we, you know, we discover things that um, change our perspective on how things were in the past. And um, I think it's our, it's, it's sort of incumbent upon us to let the facts lead us to where they take us and not try to use narratives to tell 
a story without the evidence to support it. Makes a lot of sense. Um, quick question. How long have you been a professor? Uh, this is the, well, it's a, a you mean at like a, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. As a tenure track professor with a job at Indiana State, this is my um, ninth year. Okay. So you've been teaching for a while then. Yeah. Before that, I was a research associate professor, research assistant professor. So I was just doing research, not teaching so much. Um, and I did that for maybe five years before that. So, um, but I, it wasn't like a permanent position at one place. I was just kind of moving from one place to another. So, um, and I wasn't teaching classes for that part. Okay, because the reason I ask is because, uh, you know, I've had a few other professors, and I'm always curious to see what it's like uh, to work as, as a teacher, what you enjoy about it. Before, but before I'm going to ask you that, I'm going to your Rate My Professors page. Um, <laughs> It's not the first time I've done this on the show, um, only because there's a there's a funny little sentence in one of your reviews, uh, one of the reviews about you, and I'll quote it here. It says, he addresses very complex topics with simplicity and could explain limnology and diatoms to an orangutan and that orangutan would be able to teach a dog. Um, I think that's quite the compliment. Um, science is not an easy topic to teach um, at the whether it's in high school or at the university level, uh, how do you do it? Well, um, I spend a lot of my time trying to think about how to ex how I would explain something to my parents, and they don't have a science background. And um, so my focus is sort of like that. Like, I'm going to find some people who don't have any background in this and try to talk to them, you know, in a way that they can understand it without you know, talking down to them. And uh, a lot of times it's just being, um, picking good metaphors, I think. I do a lot of food analogy, um, but also um, I, I feel like it's sort of my job, maybe all of our jobs as scientists to learn to speak to people. And um, I know you're probably gonna eventually get to talking about uh, the streaming stuff that I'm doing, but that's actually why I'm interested in it. Um, I like talking to people about science and trying to get them either interested in it or, or so that they understand it. And um, for me, it's, it's sort of easy to do because I want people to understand it. Um, you know, I care about them understanding it as long as they care about it. I don't want to, you know, like proselytize diatoms to the, uh, people who don't don't care at all about it, but um, but I, I think if they are interested in learning something about it, then I'm interested in teaching them what I know. Yeah, I feel like it's a very refreshing perspective because I, you know, I, I've been at university and and I've met a lot of professors that are very ego driven. Um, so it's nice to hear from from professors who really care about sharing their knowledge in a way that is understood. Uh, so bravo on that. I think it's uh, it's very worth uh, commending. Um, you are on Twitch. You are uh, your your name on Twitch is Diatoms Attacks, or, or is it Diatoms Attack or Attacks? Diatoms Attack. Attack, right? Okay. Um, I always mix it up. Uh, but you, um, boy, are you ever a personality on there? 
Uh, <laughs> and I say this as somebody who's a streamer, and uh, I got to say, guys, Dr. Stone frequently visits my stream. And uh, and uh, the other thing about you is that not only are you good at communicating when you're a teacher, but you're really helpful as somebody in the audience, you know, because I've noticed that you pop in on other people's streams. So um, as a streamer, I have to say thank you for that. But uh, back to you on this, uh, what what made you join Twitch? Uh, you did, actually, um, <laughs> in a way. So uh, let me... Let me sort of address a little bit of that. One of the things is I, um, I started off watching uh, your interview with Melina on Twitch, and uh, Melina's a friend of mine, so I was just sort of hanging out. I just wanted to see what it was like, and um, you know, maybe a decade ago or something, I when I was a little bit more active in playing video games, I would watch people do things on Twitch. Um, I had, I don't think I ever made an actual account for it, but um, you know. Uh, so I knew what it was already, but, um, but, uh, I watched your interview and I thought, oh, this is really kind of a neat way of communicating science to just average people. They could sit there and ask questions just, you know, from the chat. And, um, there was, there was sort of like a, uh, like there's sort of a hunger for people to, to hear things or to understand things better. And uh, many of those people aren't scientists. Um, either they're just inter interested in nature or um, or whatever. But um, I started thinking, okay, well, this is a great sort of uh, outreach tool. Like, why aren't people using this as an outreach tool to try to communicate to the average person? Because um, one of the things that happens is if you know, like, I'm I'm on Twitter. Uh, but all of the people who follow me on Twitter are almost exclusively scientists that are, you know, colleagues of mine, or they're just interested in pictures of diatoms that I put up on, uh, on the web. And it's a, it's not a way to communicate very well with like, uh, the broader society because you, it you can't really make like a, a conversation with an average person through Twitter about things that are science oriented, unless they've already got a beef with it. Like if you start a conversation with somebody about climate change, you might get some climate change deniers or something show up. And that's not really the kind of conversation you want to have anyway. So, um, you know, I wanted to be able to sort of like tap into that, what people are interested in. And so that, that sort of drove me to, uh, to Twitch because it's this sort of frontier where people, it's like, it's like you have a TV show where you can you can interview people or you could just talk about whatever you wanted to and people can just ask questions and I thought what a, what a great way to like sort of reach out to the average person and communicate things to them and and, and I liked that idea it sounded it sounded fascinating to me and I would say that like I'm not um I'm not a sharer uh like if you see, if you go to my my Twitter account and you look at my posts, they are uh, they're pictures uh, of, of things I've uh, I've either photographed or, or or imaged in the light microscope or the scanning electron microscope. Um, my publications, uh, but I don't have hot takes, and you don't get to hear about like you know my personal life very much in there. Um, and so, like, 
I like communicating with people, but I didn't want to use it as a platform to like rage against something. Um, and so, uh, this, this sort of same thing happens when, when I go to, to Twitch. Um, I, my interest is mostly about educating people, but what I found there that I think is really cool is that, um, you know, I didn't know how successful it would be and I didn't really, I don't see myself as having this like huge personality. Like that's the way you sort of presented me, but I don't, I mean, I, I don't see myself as that way. I see myself as just somebody who's interested in things. And so, uh, I, I get people who show up to my stream and then they follow me and they're also streamers. And my immediate response is, well, I want to see what they're doing because they find what I'm doing interesting. So a lot of times what I do is then sort of follow those people who are streamers back and then hang out in their streams a little bit just to see whether they're doing something that I think is cool. And I found really great communities doing this. So like right now I'm part of this artist back alley thing where, where um, uh, a bunch of artists on Twist, Twitch have sort of like, I don't know, uh, embraced science art and, uh, and my sort of art and photography associated with it is sort of like taken on a life of its own. And I'm in those people's streams, just kind of hanging out, seeing what they're doing because I'm interested in what they're drawing or, or, or whatever. And I have a, a, a sort of a little, uh, squad of microscope streamers that, um, are also on Twitch. So my friend specific plankton and Dell maximum and you, uh, and open set, there's just like a number of us that are all using microscopes and sort of, um, uh, presenting the microscopic world to people. And, um, you know, I, I'm a fan as much as I am, uh, uh somebody who is out there presenting this stuff. I want to see what other people are doing. I want to see how they're doing it. And, um, and I know that, uh, that, you know, diatomists are rare. So when they are curious about what kind of diatoms they're looking at, I want to be the person who helps them figure that out as much as I can. Um, and you know, it's not like I have to go look through books for a lot of what I'm doing. I can just look at it and say, oh, I know it's this genus, but, um, you know, one of the things that I don't see very frequently because I'm mostly do paleoecology and I look at the skeletons is I don't see diatoms when they're living very frequently. I mean, I look at the dead stuff. So, you know, when you have a live diatom and it's crawling around, I get kind of excited just to see that going on live. And, uh, the same thing with like Pacific plankton or, or Dell, um, I'm just as excited to see these cool things as other people. And, um, and they don't just look at diatoms and you don't either, you know? So, um, you know, like, I I was very excited to see you putting live water bears on the screen and, uh, and, you know, Dell has a Hydra and you can see the Hydra eating things and, or he's got a bunch of them actually, but, um, you know, like those are, those are just, it's interesting to see. And, um, and it's not something that I focus on when I'm looking at stuff. Cause I usually like the first thing I do when I'm looking at diatoms is get rid of all the organic matter so I can see the skeleton. So, um, you know, like I don't typically observe them crawling around, um, in, in their native environments being consumed by worms or, uh, or water bears or whatever. So it's actually kind of cool for me to just hang out and, and observe that. Yeah, it really sounds like um, you found a community. Yeah, and I was, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I was kind of surprised by the Twitch community is really supportive and in a way that, um, 
you know, I guess I craved it a little bit. It's a little bit of this sort of COVID, uh, you know, shell shock from us being locked in away from communities. I mean, I still have a, a lab right now that I have students in my lab, but I like to incorporate my students in my streams as well. So I like to have, um, you know, I like to, to have them also be showcased in it because I don't really think that my streams are about me. They're about what I'm putting in front of people for the most part. And, you know, like I'm a, I'm on a, I'm on the side, uh, you know, like I'm there and I'm, I, maybe I'm being entertaining, but like, I'm hoping that the thing that they're actually entertained by is what I've put in front of them and not, not necessarily just me. And you, you said something really important in saying that, um, Twitch is an outreach tool. And it's funny because when I, when I first started on Twitch, the reason I got on Twitch is because I couldn't find anybody doing it with a microscope. And at the time, I think there were, we were only three people and this was like in March. So at the starting of COVID essentially, and I was kind of shocked. I have to admit, because there are grad programs in science communication these days. Uh, you know, there are a number of courses and certificates and everybody's talking about science communication on Twitter. But I find that um, it's a very underutilized format. So it always makes me happy to see more scientists and not just scientists, but science enthusiasts showing up on Twitch. It always makes me smile. Yeah, well, I mean, every person that I mentioned as sort of being in that squad of microscope streamers, uh, except for me, is just a naturalist. You know, they're people who are just interested in the natural world. And I think that speaks to the sort of audience that they can pull in. Um, you know, they're not uh, scientists, but they, you know, they they know way, way more than what you'd expect from somebody who just grabbed a microscope and started. I mean, you, you sort of talked about it yourself. You, you spend a lot of time Googling things after you see them in your stream, uh, or trying to figure out like, what is this organism like? And you end up basically knowing more about water bears than probably most people would ever learn. Um, you know, so, but it's, it's like that. I think that's, it's like that with all of the people, um, that are on Twitch that I'm, you know, that, that use the microscopes, like, um, they, they all have sort of like a real depth of knowledge, um, that, uh, you know, or even breadth of knowledge in some cases, that's impressive. And it's because they are just interested in what they're seeing and it's fun for them to look at stuff in the microscopes and, and look around. And, um, I've tried to, uh, you know, like we've tried to sort of convince people who seem interested in it that they should get a microscope and they should consider streaming, but we still only have like maybe six or seven people um, on Twitch who use microscopes. And um, and I'm unique in that because I actually have access to a scanning electron microscope, of course, uh, in my lab. And uh, so, and I can jump over to the light microscope or I can use a scanning electron microscope or whatever. Um, so for... Uh, for me, that's another layer of sort of being unique that other people, you know, nobody really has access to one of those regularly and can just put it on Twitch, you know, twice a week. So. Yeah, that's why actually, uh, that's what actually led me to kind of pressuring you to join Twitch was because <laughs> you had access to something that was incredibly unique. Uh, it's something that, you know, we see pictures in popular mechanics and 
all these science magazines of, of, of things that have been taken under the electron microscope. And I'm, I'm actually, it's too bad that we only have about eight minutes left, but um, because I had so many questions for you about the electron <laughs> microscope itself, but just very quickly, um, one of the things that uh, you do have on your Instagram, on the um, on the Instagram account, I think it's your professional Instagram account, right? With all the pictures of the electron? Yes. Uh, the, right. The lab has an Instagram account. And then uh, I also have a personal Instagram account that I just use for posting pictures. Okay. So, uh, and we, we'll post links to both of those um, after the, the recording. Uh, but essentially... How does it work? Does it take pictures in black and white and then you color them? Yeah, all the coloring is done afterwards. And the reason for that is because the scanning electron microscope doesn't use light. And without any light, there's no color. So there is a camera that I can sort of see into the chamber with, but the SEM itself is functioning like a camera, um, except maybe a little bit more like, uh, you know, like when you had a JPEG that was trying to load on a, on a 56k modem from like uh, two decades ago or something on the internet, um, it just sort of load line by line, <laughs> so very slowly would load. Um, the scanning electron microscope scans electron beam over a little area on a specimen, and the electrons interact with the whatever it is, whatever that specimen might be, and uh, most of the electrons actually penetrate and knock an electron out from the material. So it's actually sort of degrading the material like one electron at a time. And those electrons are then captured by uh, a detector that has a positive charge. So electrons are immediately pulled towards things with a positive charge because they have a negative charge. And then, um, so for each point, it sort of captures a whole bunch of electrons. Uh, and the more electrons it captures, the brighter that spot is. And then it just draws like pixel by pixel, how bright is that pixel? So what you're getting when you look at a scanning electron microscope image is um, pixel by pixel brightness of you know how many electrons were reflected back towards the sensor. And if something is facing away from the sensor, it's dark. And if something's facing towards the sensor, it's light because more of the electrons will basically be funneled towards that sensor. And so um, all you're getting is basically a black and white image because it's building it. It's building it based on brightness. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I have at least um, an advanced knowledge of photography, so I can kind of, you know, make out what, what's going on here. But it's really, it's really a talent to be able to then color that. Uh, what applications are you using to color those images? Uh, I spend most of my time just doing that in um, Adobe Lightroom and sometimes Adobe Photoshop or Corel uh, Photo Paint, something like that. Um, uh, a lot of it's just sort of manipulating the um, midtones and the shadows and the highlights um, by just sort of in coloring them. And then, uh, if you know, if you really wanted to make uh, a fancy version of it with uh, a little bit more detail, you would do sort of layer painting um, in in Adobe Photoshop, for example. But I don't actually do that um, because it's uh, it's time consuming. Um, for me, I just do sort of uh, a coloring of the images using those tools and sort of colorizing the different parts, the midtones, the highlights, and the and the shadows. And um, I, you know, I started doing it because somebody asked me, like, why aren't you making your SEM? Because some of the early SEM uh, Instagram images are just straight out of the SEM. Uh, 
and and they asked me to to try coloring some of them because they thought it would make it more interesting for people. And I thought, well, you know, like uh, I think they're pretty cool as black and white images, <laughs> um, but uh, but I could understand why other people might want to see them in color. And so I started colorizing them basically just to sort of have a broader appeal because I thought, well, if that's what people are interested in seeing, I can put fake colors in. And, um, and now it's sort of a challenge for me to, to make them look a little bit more interesting by using the color. Um, but unfortunately, I think that there's a consequence, which is that people sometimes think that that's the actual color of a thing. And, um, and I have to sort of constantly, um, you know, explain that that's not the case. Yeah, it's, uh, I have to admit, the first time I looked at the images on the, um, the lab's uh, Instagram account, I, I had tears in my eyes, I won't lie, because you have, you do have a very artistic side. Uh, I know that you do some photography, and I, I'm sad we won't have time to talk about it. But we'll, again, we'll put a link so people can, can see the work that you do. But you really apply a, a very good sense of, of uh, color theory and, and just, just the way that you do it. It's something about it combined with the color just made me want to cry because it was beautiful. It's, um, it is as much of an art as it is a science. Thank you. Um, and I actually have like, you know, in my background, um, a lot of photography and particularly color photos, but although, uh, sort of mimicking the SEM, my early photography was all black and white. Because uh, I would develop stuff in a dark room, like I'm old, so uh, I used to be in charge of a dark room. And um, but I, I'm also I like to draw, and I've got a bunch of sort of drawing art that I do as well. Um, but I, I really like the sort of color aspect of it, and I don't, never had any formal training in it. I just, uh, it's just sort of natural decision making, like what looks good or doesn't look good to me. So um, I have no idea like what drives me to do things. I just, I look at it and I play with it and I like, that one looks good to me. So um, I'm, I'm very happy that it, um, that you get some enjoyment out of it and that people like the colorized versions because, um, you know, I spent some time working on it, but, um, but uh, it's, it's nice to have sort of an artistic outlet uh, that's associated with science because that's sort of where I like to see myself as being sort of in that realm a lot. Yeah, there's a, a lot of scientists who are also artists and vice versa. I think there's something that, uh, and that's why I interview artists and scientists. There's a link. There's a curiosity, a sense of exploration that is very similar between the two uh, professions. Um, so we're almost out of time. Can you, first of all, uh, give us the address to where you're selling your merch? I know that you sell beautiful, beautiful images of diatoms. I know you have a tardigrade image. Uh, can you give us the address to that? Um, I'm selling all that stuff on Redbubble because they will just make stuff as you ask for it. So uh, the shop name for that, if you go to uh, Redbubble, uh, it's redbubble.com uh, people forward slash people forward slash diatoms attack forward slash shop. So, uh, or you could just go there and type diatoms attack, or you can uh, put Redbubble and diatoms attack in your browser. It'll probably come up. Um, that's uh, the stuff that I'm selling. I should point out, I don't make any money from it. I mean, people buy stuff and I make money, but I put all the money back into my lab um, for student research. So uh, anything from Twitch and also from the Redbubble site, 
Um, I put my artwork on there, but then when it sells, I just use it for student to support my students. That's really beautiful. Well, listen, uh, we'll put a link to everything else, including your Twitch account, your Instagrams, and uh, as well as that store. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Stone, thanks again for joining me this evening. It was very, very interesting to learn a lot more about your research, but also a lot more about you as a, a communicator, a professor, and uh, as a, an, art- an artist. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks. Thanks.